welcome to 242 Church. So a little bit of a background on what 240 Church is, what our purpose is as a ministry. Uh, 242, does anybody know what verse we took that from? Acts 2.42, and what does Acts 2.42 tell us? What did the early church do, among other things? They studied the Bible. They studied the teaching of the apostles. And so this ministry really is a teaching ministry of our church, and it's designed to sort of take you to another level in Christian teaching beyond what you could perhaps accomplish on a Sunday morning. And uh, what we kind of like to say is it's sort of like going to Bible college without paying the tuition and doing the homework. So that, that's pretty good. Um, so 242 Church, we like to delve into a bit, a bit meatier topics. And the topic we've so- selected for this semester is the book of Revelation, which is the last book of our uh, New Testament. So my name's Aaron Rock, and I'm going to be the, the teacher. And uh, on your uh, course notes, which I hope you received coming in, if not, they're kind of in the middle there by... Jill Turner in the green shirt. Um, we are going to be meeting 11 Tuesdays from now till December the 9th, but please note that there will be no class on the following three evenings, September 30th, October 21st, and November the 11th, and that's because I won't be in town. So uh, those are the three nights that we will uh, be meeting. Uh, just a couple things. Last, last course, we ended up printing as a church about 8,000 copies of notes. I'm not going to do that this semester uh, just because it, it just takes too much time to compile them and type them all out. So it's on you to bring notepads and a pen. So tonight you get notes, but don't expect them every night. You might get some outlines, but for the most part, uh, you will not be receiving the kind of notes you've received in the past. Okay, So we're just trying to save on some expenses. And uh, we know that in a class of 85 to 90 people, that on any given evening, 15 to 20 people will be away. And so we end up with a lot of extra notes throwing them out and stuff. So just bring a notepad, if you wouldn't mind, and you can take notes that are relevant uh, to your purposes. Uh, Secondly, uh, generally, because we like to fellowship with one another, we take a break about an hour in for about 10 minutes, and we can enjoy coffee and refreshments. So we have two young ladies in our church that have volunteered to sort of oversee this, I believe. This is what I was told by my secretary. Judy Bruno, are you one of them? Okay, so did you see Judy? She's standing up, white shirt. And Deb, are you part of that thing? or Just for tonight, okay. So if you wouldn't mind just sort of randomly bringing snacks, we like snacks here at the church. And if you need to touch base with Judy in advance to say, hey, I'm coming, I'm bringing snacks, that would be great as well. So um, the other thing that I'm going to ask you to do I sort of lied a little bit. I said there's no homework. I do want to give you one homework assignment between now and next week. And it's just a simple one. I want you to read the book of Revelation. So sometime before you come next week, just sit down. If you can do it in one sitting, that would be the preferable method because then you'll get to see the big picture a little bit more. But if you have to read it in pieces because of time, that's fine too. But sit down and read all of the chapters of the book of Revelation so that as we're sort of working through the material at least you can say, well, I, I read through it once. I, I sort of remember that a little bit. Okay? So let's uh, pray, and then we're just going to get right into it, spend a couple of hours together. Father God, we thank you for the chance that we have to study your word and for the many resources that we have. At this uh, unique juncture in church history, we have all sorts of uh, library resources, all sorts of online resources, and we pray that we would take advantage of them 
so that we can grow in our, uh, maximize our growth in the knowledge of uh, your word. And that like the early church, we can be a people that, that understand your word as best as possible. And then, of course, are seeking to put it into practice. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So are you excited to be here? A little bit? Okay. We're going to begin tonight's lectures with a bit of an overview of the book of Revelation. So whenever you study a book of the Bible, it's actually quite important to take some time to to set the stage a little bit. And what I mean by setting the stage is when you enter into the exhaustive or extensive study of any book in the Bible, it's important to understand things like who wrote it, when was it written, to whom was it written, what were the circumstances surrounding the writing of that book, what language was it written in, what's sort of on a macro level the outline of the book. These are the kind of things that will uh, help you to study the book uh, much more intelligently if you understand sort of these background items. And I have found over the years as a student of the Bible that it's actually far more effective for me to understand the broad strokes of a book, book than it is for me to understand select passages within a book. So if I were to prioritize and someone were to say to me, would you rather be an expert in 10 passages of the Bible or would you rather be an expert in you know, 10 books on a macro level, I would pick the latter because I can sort of see the big picture a lot better if I understand the book sort of from a a bird's eye view. So tonight we're going to do a bit of a bird's eye view of the book and we're also going to spend some time talking about some interpretive techniques that will help us to maximize our understanding of the book. But before we get into the book of Revelation, we have to agree on something tonight. The book of Revelation is a controversial book. It's been interpreted umpteen dozen ways throughout church history. And at times, the debates surrounding the interpretation of the book of Revelation have become so intense that people have broken fellowship, created new denominations, and not talked to each other anymore. So there are churches that say, if you're not a premillennial dispensationalist, you're not allowed in our church as a member. Uh, there are churches that say, if you're not a post-millennialist, you're basically an idiot. We're not going to do that tonight, and we're not going to do that over the course of the semester. We have to agree that the book of Revelation is, at times, a difficult book to understand. I'm going to teach it. I have the advantage of teaching it from my angle, but I recognize that my interpretation of the book is not always going to be accurate, and perhaps at some point in the future, I may even modify some of my perspectives. Nevertheless, I have convictions. I will teach them to you. But we have to agree to be able to disagree on some of the less important matters. So if you leave this course and you're a post-miller, an ah-miller, a dispensationalist, we're still brothers and sisters in Christ. We're still all going to be friends, okay? So can we agree on that? Can you say I? I. Okay, excellent. So we're going to hold you accountable to that. All right, so introduction. The meaning of the title. Very simply, in our English Bibles... The book of Revelation is called the book of Revelation. Now let's make a correction. Just Again, this is not particularly important, but it is a pet peeve for biblical scholars. It's not the book of Revelations. There's no S on it. It seems like like 40% of Christians, I've read the book of Revelations. No, you haven't. There is no such thing. It's just the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is entitled the book of Revelation because it is essentially a revelation from Jesus Christ 
to an early Christian by the name of John. And the revelation, in a nutshell, I believe, revolves around both futuristic events within a few years of writing. So we'll call these immediate futuristic events. And it also deals with eschatological futuristic events or futuristic events that have to do with the very end times, which we have yet to fully experience. So it's a revelation from Jesus Christ about the immediate future and the distant future. And what we will discover in the book of Revelation is that at times there are prophecies given that have a double or a layered meaning. They have a more immediate fulfillment in mind and they have a more distant fulfillment in mind. And just to give you a rough analogy, we know that this is sometimes true in the Old Testament. So, for instance, in the book of Isaiah, it prophesies that a child would be born. His name would be Maharshal Hashbaz. That child was born, a literal earthly child with a human mother and a human father. But because of the nature of that prophetic pronouncement, with the advantage of the rest of the scripture at our disposal, we can now look back at that prophecy and say, oh, it has a double meaning. And the double meaning is to whom? It's a prophecy about Christ. So this is a little bit foreign to us because we don't have literature like that in the English language. But biblical prophecy often has an immediate futuristic fulfillment or a a point of reference within a few years or a few decades of the prophecy, but then it also often has a futuristic aspect of the prophecy that is not going to come to fruition for perhaps centuries or even millennia. So in the book of Revelation, we were interested in, in both the immediate and the distant. What are some of the purposes of the book of Revelation? Well, in broad strokes, we could say, number one, that the book of Revelation existed or was given to the church in order to warn the church against sin. Or, more broadly speaking, to warn the church against drifting off of its mission. And we're going to look at seven letters to seven different churches where they were either pretty bluntly warned or perhaps in a little softer way warned about the potential to drift into sin. Secondly, Uh, its purpose is to prophesy about the future and to give the people of God an understanding of what is yet to come. Thirdly, the book of Revelation, because it uses this word, is meant to offer a blessing to the reader. So in the opening verses, it says, if you read me, if you listen to me, and if you put me into practice, you will be blessed. So there's a practical dimension whereby the revelation was given to the church in order to bless us. Fourth, and we can't emphasize this enough, the book of Revelation was given to exalt God. And part of the way that it exalts God is by reminding, by reminding the reader that evil will ultimately fail. It may not immediately fail, But ultimately, evil will be conquered and it will fail. And God's glory and the church's victories will be evident to all, both good and evil. 
And fifth and finally, the book of Revelation serves to give us the hope that we do possess the promise of eternal life in Christ. So those are the five purposes of Revelation which we will emphasize in this course. Let's talk a little bit about the author. Five times he names himself in chapter 1, 1, 1, 4, 1, 9. So three times in the opening chapter he names himself John. His name also comes up in chapter 21, 2 and chapter 22, 8. Now, of course, the John that wrote the Gospel of John and the John that wrote the first and second and third epistle of John is the individual that we believe uh, is also this John. Of course, there is a remote possibility that it was a different John. There were other Johns, presumably, that became leaders in the early church. But as best as we can tell, based upon the testimony of early church fathers and the traditions of the church, this was John the Apostle. From where did John write the book of Revelation? Or more accurately, from where did he receive a revelation from Jesus Christ, which was later written? The island of Patmos. Now, I'll do a little kind of kindergarten level map here for you. Just to sort of orient you a little bit. So if we just draw a map that looks something like this. There's our map. Now, down here is Israel. There's Jerusalem. This is the island of Crete in the Mediterranean. So along here would be, of course, northern Africa. This is Asia. And Asia was divided up into various provinces. One of the provinces that's well known in biblical studies is Galatia, because there's a church of Galatians written to the churches in Galatia. And all around here are the locations of the seven churches to whom this letter was originally given. And out in the Aegean Sea is a tiny little island totaling 34.2 square kilometers, just a small little island. And on that island, which, which rises some 800 feet out of the sea, is a cave. And that is a traditional site that scholars believe John received this revelation from Jesus Christ while he was in exile because he was a witness for Jesus Christ. So they didn't like what he was saying. They put him on the island of Patmos, spelt as follows. Not to be mistaken for Paphos, which is on the island of Crete. On this island, he received his revelation, which ultimately went out to the churches that are identified in the book. Okay? Now, um, you can read about his exile on Patmos it's uh, mentioned in verse 9 of the opening chapter. How did the letter get off the island to the churches? How does a guy in exile have his letter taken or his book of Revelation taken to the mainland? Well, chances are he was not alone on the island or he had the opportunity to have visitors, perhaps messengers, pastors and leaders from other churches come and we're just guessing at this, but perhaps they were able to transport the early copies of his letter back to 
the mainland. When did he write it? He wrote it as best as we can tell in and around 95 or 96 AD. So this is unique in that the last book of our Bible probably was also the last one written. They are not ordered by virtue of the dates they were written, but it just happens to be that the last one was probably also the last one written when John was well into his senior years. And this would have been under the reign of Domitian, the Roman emperor at the time. What are some of the key circumstances that are important to understand surrounding John's revelation? What are the most critical historical facts which is remembered by Jews all over the world and which bothers them deeply is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. This is crucial for you to remember. In fact, it has a huge bearing on how the entire book is interpreted, and we're going to talk about the reasons why later on tonight. But it'll suffice to say at this point in time that John was writing the book of Revelation about 25 years after this glorious, sacred, extremely important place of worship was destroyed by Rome. Antiochus Epiphanes had destroyed the previous temple some 250 years earlier, or thereabouts. Now this temple was in ruins. The Jews were being persecuted. Early Christians were being persecuted. Some of them had double persecution because they were Jewish Christians. And essentially the church, certain elements of the church had gone into hiding. It was a very difficult period of time to be a Christian. And so you can imagine things like discouragement, loneliness, perhaps questioning God's love for them were, were dominant thoughts in their mind. And so John writes into that to encourage them, perhaps to perhaps to explain some of that and to help them to set their eyes on something that is to come. In terms of canonicity, canonicity is a fancy word that refers to the process of affirming a particular book of the Bible as the word of God. In terms of canonicity, or why did this book wind up in the Bible, uh, the early church understood it to have been written at the hand of an apostle. And therefore, while just like with the majority of books, there were debates, ultimately it was included within what we call the Bible or the canon of Scripture. Okay, what I've given you secondly is just sort of a bird's eye view of the book in bullet points. So if you just glance at that, we're not going to spend a lot of time on that tonight, but um, we have some introductory remarks, which are essentially the subject of chapter one. Then chapters two and three uh, are letters, individual letters written to seven churches. These seven churches that John was writing to from Patmos, they include the church in Ephesus. Do you remember that word from your study of the book of Ephesians? Uh, the church of Smyrna, another city. Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia. There's a city in the U.S. named Philadelphia, but it's not that one. Comes from two Greek words, phileo and adelphos, meaning love, brother, and Laodicea. So those seven churches each receive a letter from John through Christ. And then the number seven appears time and time and time again in the book of Revelation. So there's discussion about seven seals. That's chapter 6 and 7. And then uh, seven trumpets, a little scroll, and two witnesses are the subjects of chapters 8 through most of 11. We are introduced to some important beings whose identities have oft been debated in church history. 
notably the woman and the dragon, two different beasts, one from the sea, one from the earth. A lamb, 144,000 individuals, three angels, and also some talk of the harvest of souls in chapter 14. And then we're back to the number seven. There's seven bowls or seven vials, which are the subjects of chapters 15 and 16. And then there are seven angels, seven plagues, seven bowls of wrath. Back to the woman and the beast, discussions about the fall of Babylon. Babylon, of course, was an ancient city that was sort of the stereotype, the archetype, the metaphor for evil in the mind of the Jewish people. Why? When they said the word Babylon, what did they think about? Yep, Josh. Captivity, exactly. So two important dates in the Old Testament. 722, Israel had prior to this split in two. 722, ten tribes occupying the north, two tribes occupying the south. 722, the Assyrians come in, grab the ten northern tribes, off to captivity in Assyria. 586, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, grabs the bottom two tribes, off to captivity in Babylon. During the captivity in Babylon, prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel wrote their prophetic books. They stayed there for 70 years, also a very important number. So we have 70 AD, destruction of the temple, 70 years in Babylon. I need you to remember that number for our, our study purposes. And after that, they were released. Now, they never went back to Babylon, but because of the association of evil with Babylon, Babylon literally and figuratively is sort of a metaphor for evil. So when the word Babylon comes up in the book of Revelation, chances are it's, it's generally being used as a metaphor for evil because at the time John was writing the book of Revelation, Babylon was a fraction, had a fraction of its former glory. It essentially had dropped down to almost nothing. Most of its uh, palaces were overrun. So it was no longer a military, political, or religious threat. But again, the word Babylon became a metaphor for evil. And so there's, dis there's some discussion about the fall of Babylon in 17 through 19. And then verses, uh, chapters 19, 20, 21, and 22 are, are composed of a hallelujah song to God, discussion of a thousand year, what we call millennium, the new Jerusalem, and entrance into eternity. Now, most Christians are relatively comfortable reading chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, and then chapters 19 through 22. It's everything in between that's difficult. Because the first, yeah, I, you know, letters to churches, we can get through that. And, oh, this is going to happen to the devil, and this is, you know, what the future is going to look like. But it's, it's the middle part from chapter 4 through to... Uh, the, the first part of chapter 19 that has hotly been debated and contested throughout church history. So what I would like then to uh, suggest that we do is talk a little bit about some interpretive techniques or more accurately some interpretive techniques and some interpretive considerations that we need to think about when we 
study the book of Revelation. Now, these don't solve all of the issues, but they help us to interpret the book much better. So a few things that I would like to talk to you about. The first one is that Revelation, believe it or not, is not all about the future. So let me introduce you to some fun theological words. This will be a review for some, and it'll be new to some, some of you. So we want to talk about two different disciplines or two different uh, um, methods, shall we say, for uh, doing theology. Now, theology, of course, comes from two words. What are they in English? Sorry? I think I'm hearing them, but I'm... Okay, yep, theos and logos, and those words mean God and word. So it's a study of God's word. So we say theological, we're thinking about what flows from God's word. But because we have 66 books composed in the English Bible, Protestant Bible, uh, written in three languages over the course of a thousand years, recording several thousands of years of human history, um, there's a lot of complexities to the study of Scripture. So the two words that uh, have historically been used in the study of theology are uh, biblical theology and systematic theology. Now, I like this word, but I just don't like this word here. Because as soon as you see the word biblical, you're thinking, well, that's the biblical side and this isn't biblical. Well, they're both biblical disciplines. But biblical theology is the word that somebody chose at some point in the study of theology years ago to describe the the idea of studying a book of the Bible or a passage of the Bible all by its lonesome, for the most part. So, for example, on Sunday, I preached from Exodus 1. And in preparation for that sermon, I did what's called biblical theology. I studied my passage. I tried to understand my passage. So uh, some of the things that I might do in the study of biblical theology is I might say, I want to kind of understand who wrote this, or I want to understand the geography of the circumstances being mentioned, or I want to understand the words. Like, what does that word mean? Or what does that phrase mean? Or I want to study the people that are mentioned in that book. Or what do their names mean? And what's sort of the flow? What's the structure of that passage? And when I do that, I am doing, knowingly or unknowingly, biblical theology. Okay? When I do systematic theology, I might select a topic, kind of an important topic, like, God. And I ask questions like, who is God? Where did God come from? What is God's relationship to humanity? And in order to answer those kinds of questions, I must get into systems. So now I can't just go to Exodus chapter 1 and pull everything that I could possibly ever want to know about God out. I need to systematically study multiple passages in the Bible. 
And let's just say for the time being that I'm interested in God's attributes. So I need to study all of the passages in the Bible that speak to God's attributes, look at them collectively, systematize them, and then I can come up with statements. God is love. God is eternal. God is triune. Now, there's no one passage of the Bible that tells us all of that, is there? So when one reads a doctrinal statement or a creed, what you are in fact reading is systematic theology, where someone has systematized large swaths of scripture and come up with propositions. God is love. God is eternal, or whatever it might be. Now, what the reason why I mention this to you is because, in my opinion, almost 90% of Christians... When they come to the book of Revelation, all they want to do is stay here. So, like, immediately they want to know about the tribulation. They want to know about the millennium. They want to know about whether we're going before, during, or after. They want to know about, is there a future for Israel? And they automatically jump into systematic theology. They want the systems, right? They want to come out and say, Jesus is returning at such and such a time, or this is the sequence of events that's going to take place before this happens. But if we spend too much time here and we haven't done our biblical theology first, then we're going to fail. Not to mention the fact that in order to do good systematic theology, and let's just erase the word God and say that the topic we have an interest in over here is end times. Well, you have to go outside of Revelation to develop a full-fledged theology of the end times. You're not going to get it all in Revelation. You have to go to 1 Thessalonians. You have to go to 2 Thessalonians. You have to go to Daniel 9 through 12. You have to kind of dance around a little bit in order to get a full understanding of the scriptures. And then in addition to that, Revelation is not all about the end times. Some of it is now about ancient history, God's dealings with seven churches, for instance. So while we must do some systematic theology whenever we do biblical theology and vice versa, this is going to be 80% a course in biblical theology and 20% a course in systematic theology. So what I mean by that is my intention is to try to help you to understand the book of Revelation not just to come out with a particular millennial view. However, because the book of Revelation talks about the millennium, we're also going to talk about the millennium. But our emphasis is going to be on understanding the text to a greater degree than it is systematic theology, okay? So let's um, then talk a little bit about, I think I got my notes mixed up here a bit. Oh, down here, thank you. Point number two is that it's prophetic. And we know that based on chapter 1, verse 3. What is biblical prophecy? Could someone describe for us what biblical prophecy is? And I'll give you a tip. There should be two parts to your definition. So what's biblical prophecy? Okay. So 
So that's part number one. What's going to happen in the future? But what else is there to biblical prophecy, Joe? Okay, good. It explains God's word. So oftentimes when we use the word prophecy, we automatically think all future. But in fact, there's an element of prophecy that is akin to a policeman or a policewoman enforcing the written laws of the land. So prophets both pointed ahead, but they also pointed back. So if you read men that are called prophets in the Bible, men like Daniel, Ezekiel, Micah, Amos, it's not all, here's what's going to happen next week or next year or three lifetimes from now. In fact, they spend more time talking about what God previously had said and holding people accountable to it. They actually spend more time doing that than pointing ahead. And so when we talk about prophecy, even the book of Revelation, while Revelation happens to be more weighted in the direction of the future, it's also prophecy because it's telling people what God already said. So John is functioning through Christ as a biblical police officer. And he's reminding Ephesus, and he's reminding Philadelphia, and he's reminding Smyrna, and he's reminding us by extension, as the readers of it 2,000 years later, Hey, do you remember what God said about faithfulness, about hope, about eternal life? Uh, yeah, I forgot, though. Well, let me remind you of it again. So we're going to see futuristic stuff, but we're also going to see some familiar stuff. I just want to remind you what God already said. So that's a biblical definition of prophecy. It's about policing the covenants of God that were already delivered, but it's also about pointing to the future. Third point, I've already stated this, but I'll state it again. Revelation is not the sole place to look for eschatology or end times theology. Eschatology is the fancy word for the doctrine of the end times. So it's not entirely eschatological, and it's not the sole place to go for eschatology. Point four, Revelation is largely composed of what is known as apocalyptic, apocalyptic, Literature. Now, apocalyptic literature is a distinct and extinct form of literary genre. So it is distinct in that when you're reading apocalyptic, you can't approach it like you might approach the reading of a love letter or a novel or a history book, and it is extinct in that in our culture we don't we don't do apocalyptic literature anymore. We don't write this way. So as a literary form, the reason why Revelation freaks a lot of people out and simultaneously attracts people is because it is so different than the way we're used to thinking or speaking or writing. So therefore, as best as we can, can, we need to go back in time, try to understand a little bit about how apocalyptic literature functioned in the first and second century. And that will put us miles ahead as we uh, try to understand the book of Revelation. So let's define, first of all, what apocalyptic literature is. And these are some interpretive techniques. 
Apocalyptic literature is also known by the terms visionary literature because it often involves visions. It's also known by the term revelatory literature because it often involves revelations from a god or god. So keep in mind that apocalyptic literature is not only found in the word of God. It was a literary form that other religions, other persons outside of uh, biblical history would have utilized. Just like a Christian can write poetry, but an atheist can also write poetry, and you can look at them and say, different ideas, same literary genre. So there's biblical apocalyptic, but there's also non-biblical apocalyptic literature. Leland Riken says that it is literature that, quote, does not imitate empirical reality, but creates or imagines an alternative reality. What is empirical reality? When we talk about empiricism, what is that? Yeah, Josh. Okay, yeah. Facts and numbers, sort of the stuff you can see, taste, or you can reason with. Math equations, that kind of thing. This is not that kind of literature. So, therefore, when you read it, people say, well, I like to read the Bible literally. Well, then you'll never read the book of Revelation properly. Because by definition, its literary form doesn't allow you to be literal at all times. In fact, more often than not, it doesn't allow you to be literal. It's like metaphors, figures of speech, and that kind of thing. But what this uh, professor of literature is is suggesting is that the, the benefit of apocalyptic literature is it gets the imagination going. Fortunately, it's not the only way God has communicated because we might be imagining a lot of things and debating a lot more things. But at, at times, I guess God felt, you know, I, I want to speak to them sort of very clearly. Here's Ten Commandments. You shall not do this. Understood? Yeah. Don't go here. Go there. Do this. Don't do that. Okay. At other times, God chose to speak to us proverbially. You know, if you want to be a wise man, you should probably hang out with wise people. Oh, that's a good idea. It's not a commandment, but it's a proverbial truth. Yeah, that makes sense. And other times God speaks to us using very flowery, visionary, imaginative literature, like the book of Revelation, to accomplish a different purpose. And we're going to try to understand what some of those purposes are in the weeks to come. Fee and Stewart, two other biblical scholars, say, be prepared to, quote, encounter aliens, trumpets, earthquakes, beasts, dragons, dragons, and bottomless pits. So if you like Lord of the Rings stuff, you're going to like the book of Revelation. Okay, apocalyptic in the Bible. Where do we find it? Well, apocalyptic literature can be found primarily in the book of Revelation. But it's also found in the latter half of Daniel. Daniel is also composed of different forms of literary genre. So Daniel 1, Daniel 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, it's more of a narrative form of literature where it's 
unpacking certain episodes in the life of Daniel while he was in Babylon, certain struggles. Within those struggles, sometimes there are visions that are communicated to him by the kings that he's serving. And those are kind of apocalyptic in nature. But then in the latter part of Daniel, notably chapters 5, or sorry, chapters 9 to 12, he gets back into uh, apocalyptic literature. He talks about 62 sevens and one more seven and 1,290 days and all this. Like, well, I don't know what all this means, but it's, it's apocalyptic literature. It's meant to stimulate the imagination. It's also sprinkled through the prophetic books of our Bible. So we have the prophetic books of the Bible, more at the end of the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, those guys. Those are prophetic books, and within those books, there's little sections or segments of apocalyptic literature that pop up. As a genre, apocalyptic includes elements unique to it that are not found in any other form of literature, as well as elements from prophetic literature, which is another genre of literature, and epistles, which are letters, notably the letters to the seven churches. So there's more than one genre in Revelation, and in apocalyptic literature, there are elements drawn from some of those other genres, like prophecy, like uh, poetry even, like epistles. So I just want to pause for a moment and... Don't be shy. Is there anything I've said you don't understand or you want me to repeat before we move on? And don't say all of it, please. <laughs> okay. Okay, so let's then talk about... Sorry? Correct. Very, very astute young man here. Very good. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to talk then about some of the characteristics of apocalyptic literature. And I'm going to give you ten points. Point number one, apocalyptic literature does not necessarily relate to the future. Now, this has been mentioned earlier in our study of Revelation, but now we're talking about the literary form. It doesn't necessarily relate to the future. Point two, apocalyptic literature often... And, and, I, and I like this sort of idea in, in Revelation in particular. Transform the present state of things. So we used the word empirical earlier. The stuff we can see, the stuff we can manage, the stuff we can touch. The present state of things into that which is only imagined from the standpoint of the writer. Point number three, apocalyptic literature is often characterized by a reversal of reality. I'll give you an example of this outside of the book of Revelation, the book of Amos. Amos talks about the mountains dripping with wine. So as the people look forward to what the future would be like, wine was a staple food item for them. So there's going to come a time when the mountains are going to drip with wine. Well, that's a reversal of reality because mountain, I understand it. Wine, I understand it. Mountains dripping with wine, that's not reality. But the writer often mix and ma mixes and matches aspects of reality and non-reality into one. 
And what that does is, again, that appeals to the imagination. It gets you thinking to a greater degree than if God might have said, and the future things are going to be great. Four, apocalyptic literature portrays the supernatural world. So the supernatural is that which is above and beyond the natural. Includes angels and beasts and Holy Spirit and God and all these angels. Apocalyptic literature portrays the supernatural world with elements of the natural mixed in. Revelation 12, 1 to 4 introduces us to a dragon. And the dragon is said to swing his tail and do what? Knock stars from the sky. So we have a mixture here then of the natural and the non-natural coming together to form this splendid image of this dragon's activities and strength. Point number five, apocalyptic literature features characters that are supernatural and strange. I'd say, like, why do we have to hear about this weird-looking dragon or this beast or how many horns this animal has or you know, how many whiskers this one has? Like, that's kind of weird. But that's the nature of apocalyptic literature. It, it features characters that are supernatural and strange. Six, apocalyptic literature is filled with inanimate objects, often functioning as actors. So inanimate objects, by definition, don't have personality. They're... They're not people, they're not animals, they're not living, breathing beings. But in apocalyptic literature, they often become just that. So Revelation 10.4, we have seven thunders that are speaking. Well, thunder makes noises, but it doesn't speak. But in the book of Revelation, it does because it's apocalyptic literature. So when you're writing apocalyptic, apocalyptic, you're allowed to let thunder speak to you. Seventh, apocalyptic literature seeks to shock the reader into reflecting upon the future or present realities or eternal realities or the status quo, etc. So it's meant to shake you up a little bit and get your attention. Eighth, apocalyptic literature is not necessarily smooth-flowing and linear. I'll give you some examples of that. Seven bowls, seven trumpets. But instead of introducing us, bowl number one, bowl number two, through to bowl number seven, or seven trumpets, bowl number one to bowl number seven, in both of those situations... Just in between the sixth and the seventh item, the writer steps out, takes a little parentheses, talks about something else, and then comes back in. You're like, okay, just a sec. I was tracking with you. Now you threw me off. But that's the nature of apocalyptic. It's not always linear. It's not always easy. It doesn't always flow the way we might like it to flow. Instead, it is often disjointed. And the writer might jump back and forth. So we do need to be a little bit careful about trying to uh, take apocalyptic literature then and sort of just arrange it all into a neat and tidy little 
historical progression, because sometimes we're thrown for a bit of a loop. Ninth, apocalyptic literature is dream literature, meaning that the writers receive it in the form of a dream or a revelation. And it features things like momentary pictures. So the writer might see something, but he might say, I just momentarily saw this. Or abrupt jumps. He sees one thing and then boom, he sees another thing. Or multiple scenes all at once. And I saw this and I saw this and then I saw this and then I saw this. Or multiple actors, both animate and inanimate. So a lot of stuff being thrown at the reader. And tenth, whereas prophecies, like lamentations, were first spoken and then written, apocalyptic is always written first and then spoken and preached. So as a genre, it comes to the reader onto the page. Whereas in, prof in prophetic literature, the preachers, the prophets, are typically out preaching and then they put it into writing. If you would like to add to your library a classic reference book that deals with literary genre, I would uh, refer you to a man. He's not a theologian. He's actually a, a professor of English, or was. And uh, his name is Leland Riken. Kind of a cool name. And pretty much anything he wrote, you should buy. So he wrote a book called How to Read the Bible as Literature, um, very helpful book, and a few other books along those lines that uh, are helpful primers in terms of understanding, again, the genres of literature and the principles that govern them. The historical context of Genesis, and we'll go for about another 10 minutes and we'll take a brief break. The historical context in apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is rooted both in this age and in the next. You might say, well, isn't kind of all the Bible written in this, rooted in this age and the next? Well, yeah, it is. I mean, in, in, a, in a broad sense, when Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, though, you need to admit he's sort of speaking into the immediate, saying this is how you should act. This is what the priorities of your life should look like. Do they have implications for the age to come? Yeah, but it's more like how to live life well in the here and now. And that's the focus of it. The book of Proverbs is very much about the now. If you want to be a wise, skillful person, this is what you should do and not do. But the book of Revelation, as an apocalyptic book, is rooted in this age and the next. So what you need to be thinking about, and this can be kind of difficult, you sort of need to learn this technique. As you're reading apocalyptic literature, you must sort of allow your mind to move back and forth between two worlds, the now and the future, the, the present and the eschatological. These two worlds. Yes, you need to recognize that there is an emphasis on God's sovereignty in the here and now, but there's also a sense in which the fullness of God's sovereignty is going to be really obvious in the future. Yes, there is hope in the now, but there's also 
greater hope in the life that is to come. So your, your mind is going back and forth between how to take the material you're reading and apply it to my life now, but also in the future. And you have to go back and forth, back and forth in your mind as you're reading and reflecting upon what you're learning. So here are some principles, some further principles then that you'll want to put into practice, some, some study tips, um, some exegetical principles that you want, you'll want to practice when you're reading apocalyptic literature. Be prepared to use your imagination. So if you're a lawyer, it's going to be much easier for you to read the Ten Commandments than it is Proverbs. If you're an artist, it's going to be much easier for you to read maybe the Song of Solomon than it is the Ten Commandments. If you're an artist, an imaginative person, you're probably going to, frankly, be able to read the book of Revelation better than the mathematicians in the room, if that's sort of how you think. But all of us have an imagination. We were told stories as kids. We understand fairy tales. We understand figures of speech. And so we can all learn and should continue to learn to use our imaginations to think in terms of a world that transcends the temporal realities of the, of the moment. Second tip, and this applies to really all of Scripture, but um, there's an aspect of it that we'll take to another level. Focus on the original intent to the original readers as much as you can. So oftentimes we take our Bible, that's what, 2014, and we open it up and we're looking for a message from God, black and white, that directly is applicable and transferable without any thought from the world of the biblical writer into my life. And it just doesn't really work that way most of the time. You need to study language, circumstances, broader message, and then you finally get to the takeaway. Well, when it comes to the book of Revelation, it's even more important because we don't read apocalyptic literature. So what we're trying to understand is well, what would be the first guy, like when that boat reached the shore of Asia from the island of Patmos, whoever that first messenger was, and he pulled out the first hot-off-the-press scroll of Revelation and he handed it to whoever was standing there, and that guy opened it up, what would his first impression have been, assuming he understood it correctly? What would he have taken away? And when he went back and started preaching at his church, what would that sermon have sounded like? So as much as possible, we're trying to understand the original understanding of the original audience. Now, having said that, of course, we recognize that we have a leg up. So the guy standing on the shore, he has a leg up on us because he understands apocalyptic literature. We have a leg up because... We now have bound up into one book all 66 books of the Bible, which he did not have yet. So there's a trade-off. But as much as possible, we're trying to understand what would the original reader have understood. And that can be difficult at times, but we're trying to understand that. What he probably wouldn't have been thinking about is that the Antichrist is Obama. Pretty sure he probably wouldn't have been thinking about that. Or that, uh, you know, Russia is the beast from the north. Pretty sure he wouldn't have been thinking about that. So whereas modern Christians love to take the events of the book of Revelation and immediately find the political figure or the political event that that matches, 
for thousands of years, or for hundreds of years at least, the church has done uh, has has found the book of Revelation useful long before Obama was born or the USSR was formed. So what we have to be very, very, very careful of, did I say very careful, is going from the world of the text and automatically drawing dogmatic conclusions. Well, this is the current event it refers to. Even from a statistical perspective, the chances of the figures of the Bible even being alive in our day and age are, are pretty slim. They may be, but I'm going to tell you something that very few preachers, maybe no preachers ever told you, and it may not even make you feel confident to you anyway. We might, got, we might have 10,000 more years ahead of us before Jesus Christ comes back. Because oh, he's definitely returning in my lifetime. Yeah, they were saying that a thousand years ago. So Israel might be in the land, out of the land, in and out of the land ten more times before Jesus comes back. We just don't know. Now, he might come back tonight, but we just don't know. So we have to be very careful and perhaps check our pride a little bit, thinking that somehow, for the first time in human history, we are the people living in the very last time events. We might not be. Okay, We just might not be. So we have to be careful about that. Comical but sad illustration. I actually had a guy come to me probably about 15 years ago and tell me he was one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. And he was from Windsor, and he was looking for the other witness. He finally found him downtown. This other guy's name was Trevor. And I said, really? The two witnesses in the book of Revelation are from Windsor, and one guy's name's Trevor. I don't think so. So we asked him if he wanted to go down and turn the Detroit River into blood, and he refused. So he said, then you're not the man. But he was convinced, and many people have been convinced. Uh, those of you that have been around church for probably 25 or, or more years have probably at some point received a booklet to the effect that, you know, Jesus is coming back in 1984. And those aren't in print anymore. Um, but stuff like that's been coming off the press, and they're always like a year or two removed. Remember the billboards in town here a few years back? Harold Camping, and um, you know it's, it's just distant history now. So we, need, we just need to be careful. Third, interpretively, we must properly understand imagery as best as we can by understanding cultural background of writers, of the recipients, by exploring like images in the Old Testament and the way images can be used. Now, some of the imagery that is used in the book of Revelation is interpreted for us within the book of Revelation. And those are the ones we like. So some examples of that would be in Revelation 1.8, it calls God the Alpha and Omega. You know, what? Who's that? And then in 117, it validates that that means the first and the last, the living one, meaning God. Oh, okay, so Alpha and Omega is a figure, figure for God. Okay, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Okay, I'm going to remember that. So we've taken care of that figure of speech. Or another example might be uh, the seven lampstands. Seven lampstands, like, who, who are these seven lampstands supposed to represent? And these come up in chapter 1, verse 12. Well, we, we only have to read like a few more verses to chapter 1, verse 20. It says it's the seven churches. Okay, so 
The lampstands, that's a metaphor for churches. Or the seven stars in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 16. Well, they're interpreted for us in chapter 1, verse 20 as the angels or the messengers of the churches. And messengers is not like angels with a capital A with wings. It's um, literally like the postman, the messenger who's taking the letter to the churches. So fortunately, those kind of metaphors are cleared for us or we understand them. There's others that we got to go back to the Old Testament. we got to cross-reference. And there's others that are still just making us scratch our heads 1,900, 2,000 years after receiving it. Uh, fourth, the visions must be explained as whole units. Not that aspects of the, vi- the, the visions might not be broken down into very specific elements of prophecy, but again, read broadly. So if you're reading something in Revelation, I don't understand what this means. Well, step back. I'm going to read 10 verses either side. Still don't get it. I'm going to step back, read 20 verses either side, step back. I'm just going to reread the whole book. So by reading it in context, it's, it's very helpful to, to read it as larger units. And then fifth, because we are dealing with allegory, oftentimes, we cannot press all of the details for allegorical significance. So let's just say for the sake of you know, being fun that in the book of Revelation there's a, a giant fuzzy rabbit and it has three ears and eight tails and fangs. And it says there's 16 of those fangs. Well, perhaps the giant fuzzy rabbit does refer to the Antichrist. And, and maybe that's what we're supposed to be thinking about. But then if we're like, but I want to understand what the 16 fangs stand for. Well, maybe then we're taking the details too far. And the 16 fangs are meant simply to provide you with a, an image of something weird, but they're not necessarily supposed to be called. That's the 16 lieutenants, right? So we just have to be careful when we're dealing with allegory, try to understand them broadly. But if we start pressing the details, maybe we're supposed to, but maybe we're not supposed to. And then finally... Let's keep in mind that metaphors and figures of speech dominate the book of Revelation. Dominate the book of Revelation. And so again, we need to be very careful when we say, well, I read the book of Revelation literally. Because figures of speech aren't supposed to be read literally. So let's take a 10-minute break and then... uh, We'll come back together and spend a little more time. I want to talk about four different uh, approaches uh, to the book of Revelation. You could be reading commentaries on Revelation, um, survey books on Revelation, and pretty much in all of them, these four words are going to come up. And these are the titles of four different approaches to the book of Revelation on a big picture level. Now, just by show of hands, how many of you have studied the book of Revelation at some point point in the past, like in a course, Sunday school class, something like that? Okay, number of you. So depending on your doctrinal background or your church background, you will probably recognize one of these approaches, even if you've never heard this word before, as I describe them to you. Because these these approaches are also often attached to uh, denominations or historical movements within Christianity.
But these are these are the four movements, and there's actually pluses and minuses, I think, to each one of them. So I'll kind of uh, introduce them to you, and then I'll uh, give you my my personal uh, preferences um, on these four views. So these are what we're calling main approaches to interpretation. So the first is called the historicist approach. And the historicist looks at the book of Revelation and says the book of Revelation as a whole outlines the course of events that have or will take place from the birth of the church at Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' ascension, through to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So even though the events are sort of cloaked in metaphor and allegory, the events of the book of Revelation, looked at in more or less in order, will give you an idea about what's going to happen from Pentecost to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, this view was held by many Reformed thinkers historically in Europe. But interestingly, when they interpreted the events of Revelation, believing that it identified all the events from Pentecost to the second coming of Christ, they applied all of their interpretation to the events that were taking place in Western Europe and Western Europe alone. And for this reason, if you take that approach and go with the historical view that it applies to the events of Western Europe, there's two major problems with that. First problem is that the book would have been completely irrelevant to Asian Jews or Asian Christians or Palestinian Christians in the first century, the second century, the third century. So it's interesting that these Reformed thinkers felt very comfortable interpreting it through the grid of their circumstances and culture without really thinking about the fact that what you're basically saying is up till you sort of arrived at these conclusions, it has nothing to do with how the first century Christians would have understood it. And then the second obvious flaw is that it's completely irrelevant to anyone living outside of Western Europe. So that's uh, uh, problematic with this particular approach. Uh, the second view is called the preterist, preterist view. And the preterist view understood the book symbolically. They took the symbols of the book and applied them to the events of John's day, which would have included, like in and around that time, the defeat of the Jews, the destruction of the temple, the persecution of the church. So they would have seen, the early preterists, everything in the book of Revelation from beginning to end is some sort of an allegory for the things that are taking place in and around the first century of the church. <clears throat> Other preterists see later saw the symbols as a clash between Jews and Christians in recent centuries. And the plus, of course, that if it was true that the events all applied to the events of John's day, it would have been a book that's highly relevant to the first century le reader and completely irrelevant to you and me because it's all past now. Everything in it is past. So the best we can do is maybe glean some ideas from it, some analogous circumstances, but really there's nothing in it about future and hope for us. The futurist view 
uh, understands that the first three chapter or interprets the first three chapters to be uh, a reference to things going on in the early church. So they would say the, the seven letters are referring to the seven actual churches that existed within that time. That's what they were for. They were at that point in time. And then starting with chapter 4 to 22, that those events outlined f- future events, events even yet to come from our vantage point. And depending on the, uh, the particular brand or strand under that heading, depending how you understand the tribulation, the second coming, the millennium, the new heavens and the new earth, the future of Israel, and there's a lot of different views on that, uh, you would kind of apply the views to buttress or, or inform your own particular understanding of eschatology. But in all of those views, it's all 4 to 22 is about the future. So, for instance, uh, premillennial dispensationalists, some of you will know that language, some of you won't, but a premillennialist basically says the church will go to be with Christ prior to a thousand-year millennial reign on earth, and that human history is divided into different dispensations or eras, um, the two main ones being the age of the law, the age of the cross. There's obviously a futuristic age yet to come, new heavens and the new earth. The This view was really kind of reinforced or popularized by people of that ilk, premillennial dispensationalists. Now, um, the disadvantage of that view is really tied more to uh, the sub-approaches. So some of those sub-approaches, like within premillennial dispensationalism, I think makes too great of an attempt to take every detail and interpret it in light of the future, and perhaps errs in the side of being too literal. The advantage of this view is that Revelation as a whole becomes relevant for the early church and the modern church, because it has a message for the early church and it has a message for the church today. Now, the idealist view is the fourth view, and this is this view approaches the book more allegorically. So the whole book allegorically. So what it does is it identifies... It, it, uh, idealists are not really all that interested in what any one figure or any one event in Revelation represents. Rather, they're interested in how the events of Revelation speak into the ongoing struggles that the people of God have through all of human history against themselves, against Satan, against the world, against pagans, etc. So idealists do not apply the specific events to any specific circumstances ever. And what this view does positively is it allows us not to press the details too far, but still gain valuable lessons. Negatively, it calls into question the benefit of all the details. Well, if none of the details matter, and there's not a figure, there's not an event, in all of the book of Revelation that refers to anything specific, then what, really, what's the point of it all? Like, what, Why are we given so much information if it's all basically wide open to whatever you want it to, be, to mean? So it's very difficult to monitor how one would apply whatever it is they're gleaning from the book of Revelation if... Every figure, every event, in fact, has no reference point to it.
So um, those are sort of the four main views. Personally, um, I don't want to sort of pigeonhole myself because if someone says, well, I'm a futurist, Aaron's a futurist, we must be the same. That's not true. We may differ on a lot of different points. But I tend to hold to the futuristic view that the first three chapters probably are a reference to the specific events that God wanted to address among the early Christian churches. And that chapter four and onward probably refers to events that have yet to take place, including a literal tribulation, a literal millennium, a literal return of the Jews to the land of Israel, a literal battle of good and evil and so forth. But I probably hold to it with less dogmatism uh, in terms of trying to interpret every detail than maybe um, dispensationalists would have 30 years ago. So, for instance, I remember growing up in a church where there was a giant chart on the wall behind the pulpit. And it had all kinds of scripture references and the narrow road that led to heaven, the broad road to destruction. Here's when the tribulation is going to take place. This is when the Jews are coming back on it. Like every little detail has sort of been figured out. And, uh, you know, I just thought that that's what everybody believed. But um, I came to realize that those kinds of charts and those kind of details really only came into effect in the 1800s out of um, the Brethren and Baptists of England. And some American theologians as well, and that historically those kinds of details have never been applied to the book of Revelation. And so while I believe in some of that, I'm not sure that I'm as apt to press every detail to the degree that um, some historic dispensationalists have. So in this sense, I prefer, in, in, in fact, I probably am more interested in the hermeneutic of the historicist, but I'm probably more in line with the approach to the text or the interpretation of the text that the futurists hold. So I do believe that the book does refer, broadly speaking, to the events of Pentecost through to the second coming of Christ, but I don't apply it to the events of Western Europe. I'm not going to apply them to Obama. I'm not going to apply them to the specifics of my world, but I, but I am going to look at it and try to, in broad strokes at least, understand what is to come because I take a futuristic approach. So let me tell you in more detail why I hold to this view. And here's where I need to do a little bit of systematic theology with you. And I'm going to be throwing a lot at you, so take notes because you probably won't be able to digest it all on the spot. So you can open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. And um, throw a number of observations at you. These aren't necessarily sequential observations, but a number of observations. And again, this is just a very, we have a limited amount of time together tonight, but I want to do a little bit of work with you in trying to help you to understand why I tend toward the futurist view. In uh, Revelation chapter 2, it begins to identify very clearly to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Smyrna, or specifically to the angel, meaning messenger, probably the pastor of the church of Smyrna. Not saying that pastors are angels, but 
The word angelos in Greek can refer to an angel, like a celestial being, or it can refer to a person who delivers a message. So chances are in this context, it's not referring to a celestial being, but a messenger. Same word in Greek, so you, these, this particular translation is cho- chosen to go with angel. I think it should be translated as messenger. Regardless, in two chapters, it specifically mentions Ephesus, it mentions Smyrna, it mentions Pergamum, and so forth and so on through the seven churches. And just prior to that, at the tail end of chapter 1, uh, the revelation says that the seven churches, it mentions the seven churches twice, just in that, that last verse. And so the literal side of me basically looks at it and says, well, unless there's something else in the book of Revelation to tell me otherwise, or there's some logical reason why I shouldn't understand these as seven letters to those specific churches, which were in existence at that point in time, or unless there's someplace else in the Bible that informs my interpretation otherwise, if it says they're written to seven churches and it names them, then in this particular instance, I'm going to go with seven churches. So, very simple. I believe the first three chapters were written to the seven churches of Asia. And there's really no other reason for me to think otherwise. Now, the beginning of chapter 4 is a little more complicated. And this is where, you know, I, I would prefer to use words like, this might be the case, or this is what I think, or I would like to propose. But I'm far less dogmatic with my understanding of the uh, 4th to the 22nd chapter. Nevertheless, if you keep your hand in chapter 4, and... Um, Go back to chapter 1. As you begin to read through chapter 1, you see that John is receiving a revelation reminding the people of God about the past, the present, and the future. And in order to set us up for thinking in past, present, and future, it actually uses that language to refer to God. So in verse 4, it says, Grace and peace to you from him who is, him who, who was, and who is to come. Now, you might just sort of blow by that and say, yeah, that's, that's standard language for God. God is past, present, future. He's eternal. But I'm wondering if that's not some sort of a, a cue or a clue that sort of begins to get their reader thinking in terms of past, present, and future because what they're about to read in the book of Revelation has a lot to do with past, present, and future. So the writer then seems to begin with the past. He says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins. So he refers to what uh, you know God has done in the past through Christ by freeing us from our sins. So we have time words there that are mentioned. And then we have um, uh, more of a present kind of language where in chapters 2 and 3, the writer is writing to present-day existing churches. In order to set us up for that, I want you to look at 
chapter 1, verse 19, where it says, Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. So again, we have time words, past, present, future. He begins in chapter 1 really by pointing the people back to the work of the atoning work of Christ in the cross. Presumably, if I'm correct that the seven churches are the present tense existing churches, that's the element of the book of Revelation. It's really very present tense-ish. But then when you get to chapter 4, he says, um, after this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven and the voice I heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said. And it seems like there is a shift of thinking here in the text where he begins to project forward in the biblical narrative and speak about things which are to come. So it just seems to me that the book of Revelation is, you know, more or less, without pressing it too far, chapter 1 seems to be more past, chapter 2 and 3 seems to be more present, from the perspective of the writer, and then he points ahead. Now, by the time you get to 19 and chapter 19 and 20, there's no question about the fact that he's speaking ahead. I mean, he's talking about the new heavens and the earth, the ultimate judgment, and there's no place between chapter 4 and chapter 19 where suddenly he's like, okay, now I'm going to talk about the future. It's sort of assumed from chapter 4 onward and becomes increasingly obvious as you get to the end of the book that he's talking about the future. The second thing I want to do is I want to take you back to Daniel chapter 9. And uh, Daniel, of course, is in our Old Testament. And the setting is Babylon. And Daniel has uh, just finished interpreting dreams, being rescued from some catastrophic events Daniel chapter 9 and you know to do justice to this we'd have to spend quite a bit of time in it but I'm going to kind of just go through it quickly verse 25 verses 20 to the end of chapter 9 is a section about uh, 70 sevens so 490 years, right? And the 77s, sometimes in the old translation is called the 70 weeks, which in fact refers to 70 or seven sets of seven years, is divided up into three sections. So I'll go back to verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin, the sin of my people Israel, making my request of the Lord for his holy hill, so that's Jerusalem, Zion, which also comes up in Revelation. While I was in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in an earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He, he would have been known as an, or thought of as an angelic visitor. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to you to give you insight and understanding. Same kind of language John uses. As soon as you begin to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Seventy sevens, or seventy sets of seven years each, are decreed for your people and your holy hill to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in eternal righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. 
Now, there's a lot there, but what he's saying is that there's going to be 70 sets of seven years, and within that 70 sets of seven years, totaling 490 years, all of these things are going to take place. No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree, the decree is generally understood as one of the decrees for when the Jews were released from captivity back to the land, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, which is another word for Christ or Messiah, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. So that would total 69 of the 70 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench in times of trouble. Now, if you actually chart out this particular point in history and run it forward to the year is actually when the temple was rebuilt. After the 62 sevens, now it doesn't say how long after the 62 sevens, but after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. And many theologians have actually dated that to the crucifixion of Christ. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So that's been variously interpreted as Alexander the Great, Antiochus Epiphanes, um, Nero, depending on how you date all of this, but some sort of person or individual in a position of authority that is opposed to the things of God, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, there's two destructions that took place between this prophecy and now. The destruction under Antiochus Epiphanes and the destruction under Nero. So again, people date it differently. Probably refers to the destruction, uh, one of the destructions of the temple. Then it just says, the end will come like a flood, an indefinite period of time. doesn't tell us how long that will be. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. And then it says, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven, one set of seven years. In the middle of the seven, so that would be at the three and a half year mark, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Now, I mean, there's, you could spend, as, as you read it, you understand, you could spend a lot of time playing around with dates and times and all that kind of stuff. I've done it. It's been a while, but I've done it. And you can actually date, if you interpret this with a fair degree of literality, to the destruction of the temple and to the birth of Christ, and so forth. But what you're left with is this 1-7. And the debate among many students of Revelation is, was this 7, this period of time of abomination, was that a reference to one of the past abominations in the temple, maybe the one under Antiochus Epiphanes, maybe the one later under the Roman ruler in the year 70? Or is this something yet to come? And the reason why I think it's yet to come, <clears throat> there's a number of reasons for it, because in between the 62 sevens and the seven sevens, the text seems to indicate some sort of an unspecified period of time during which will be, there will be war and desolation, and then after that period of time, some sort of final uh, destruction. Now, <clears throat> if you flip forward in Daniel to chapter 12, verse 2, <clears throat> Daniel is now receiving a vision from Michael. 
And um, he says to him in, in verse 2, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. And then he goes on from there. Now, something could have happened between the, the events of chapter 9 and the events of chapter 12 that changed the time reference. It's pretty hard to deny that chapter 12 is a reference to the end, end, end of all things. I mean, he's talking about, he's using final resurrection kind of language. It's possible that in chapter 9, he wasn't thinking about the end, 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 end. He was thinking about sometime more the immediate future, maybe something that did happen now 2,000 years ago. But from his perspective, it was still 500 some odd years away. But because there's nothing in chapter 9, 10, or 11, or 12 that seems to change the time reference, in my opinion. I think the whole package is referring to the future events. So that this multi the multitudes who will come to everlasting life or everlasting contempt, which is clearly eschatological, is just an additional piece of information that Daniel is given about the end. So for that reason as well, I think that the 70th seven is probably yet future. So let's take it a step further. Um, is there anything in the New Testament that would indicate that the biblical writers understood that some sort of a heinous figure, akin to the one who's bringing some of an abomination on the temple in this 70th seven in the future is going to exist. So let, let me say that again a different way. If Daniel's 70th seven is yet to come, and if during that 70th seven at the halfway mark, at the three and a half year mark, there's going to be some sort of a very evil person who will oppose the things of God just prior to the end of all things, then is there any person alluded to in the New Testament that may meet the qualifications, so to speak, for that kind of a person. And I think there is. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians <clears throat> chapter 2. And what I'll do is I'll just kind of go through all this, and then we'll open it up for questions. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Clearly, this passage is speaking about the end, end, end of all things, the distant future, because he begins chapter two with concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus had come, he had died, he'd been resurrected, he'd spent time with them, and he'd, been, he'd ascended to heaven. So now they're, they're asking questions like, well, when is the second coming of Christ going to be? The writer says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, brothers, not to be, uh, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, letter, or report supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of our Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. Now, who is this person? We don't know his name, but we're told what he will do. 
He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worship. So he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So some sort of an abomination against the temple. Now, the reason why this can't be passed, in my view, is there is no temple right now. And Jesus hasn't come back yet. So as part of the bigger picture, we believe that the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem and this man will appear. Moving on. Don't you remember that when I I was with you, I used to tell you these things and now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work in you. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all sorts of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those that are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Now, this passage speaks of the man of lawlessness that will clearly come before Christ's second coming. Now, if you go to Revelation chapter 13, <clears throat> verses 5 to 8, the descriptions fit. It's not called the man of lawlessness here, but the descriptions of this lawless person fit the descriptions of one of the characters that we meet in Revelation 13, verses uh, 5 to 8. So this is a beast, and it says in verses 5 to 8, uh, the beast was given a mouth to utter words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months which is three and a half years. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God. So three and a half years, he's cool. But three and a half years, he opens his mouth to blaspheme God. And to slander his name in his dwelling place in heaven, he was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. He was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose name have not been written in the book of life, belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. Now, again, some people say, but that was probably like a, a Nero or one of those early Ro Roman figures. But the problem I have with that interpretation is that the other passages we've looked at link the events of this man to the, in and around the second coming of Christ. So if these events were events that were fulfilled in the first century, 2,000 years is an awful long time. Jesus obviously hasn't come back to say, well, in fact, it's sort of all one era. Uh, that's a long period of time. So it just seems to me to best understand the man of lawlessness and the individual who is exercising his role during the 70th seven of Daniel's prophecy as uh, one that is yet to come. Now, the final comment I'd like to make is that most people would agree that whatever is taking place in chapters 4 to 
22 of Revelation are catastrophic, evil, and horrible events. Most. Some pretty nasty stuff taking place. And um, we could just say then that it's largely about wrath and terrible things for the most part. Now, go back to 1 Thessalonians, not 2 Thessalonians, but 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the writer is also speaking about the second coming of Christ, the Apostle Paul. And he says in, in chapter 5, verse 1, Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, day of the Lord was always understood in Old Testament scripture as some sort of a catastrophic future judgment from God. So, pr again, probably best to be understood as some sort of eschatological futuristic event. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains in a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you brothers are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but be alert and self-controlled for those who sleep, sleep at night, and for those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith, and love as a breastplate, the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you might say, yeah, but... Many Christians have suffered wrath at the hands of unbelievers. That's true. But in this context, he's speaking about eschatological wrath. He's speaking about the day of the Lord. He's speaking about something that is to come. And again, we don't know for sure, but it would probably be best to understand this as tied to those very catastrophic events which will take place within the 70th seven of Daniel's prophecy during the time that we now call the Great Tribulation, which will be divided in half. Three and a half years with this guy's ruling, and everyone's like, peace, prosperity, everything's great. And then his true colors are revealed, and during the latter half, this guy that's referred to as the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 5, this guy that's referred to potentially in uh, Daniel chapter 9 as some sort of a tyrant is going to somehow bring an abomination against God and his people. Uh, if you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 to 18, so these are the, these are the uh, verses that come immediately prior to 5, 1 to 9, which we just read. Look what verses 15 to 18 say. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So when, when Christ does come, those who have fallen asleep will be raised, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So those who have died in Christ, they will be resurrected first. After that, 
We who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will be with him forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, those words, maybe they're not linear, but those words come immediately prior to this passage that says that we will, uh, we have not been appointed to suffer wrath. So, for those reasons and many others, it seems that it's probably best to understand that the events that are recorded in chapters 4 to 19 of Revelation are probably a reference to events that will take place within the tribulation or this time of wrath, a portion of which won't be so bad, a portion of which will be horrendous. And all of that, including this man of lawlessness, this great abominator who will rule during that period of time, uh, will come on the scenes scene after we have been taken up with the Lord. So your thoughts, your comments, your feedback at this point. Is your head swimming? <laughs> Mrs. Bell. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it, it is true that just like any other doctrine in Scripture, that there are divergent viewpoints. That's why the church, defined in its broadest sense, as anyone that likes Jesus, has been uh, divided and fragmented. And some of that fragmentation is due to language issues or just geographical realities, you know, church grew up here, a church grew up there, and they met each other centuries there, and they're just different. Other times, it's because they've split over substantive issues and should have split, you know, issues of truth, like life or death. Other times, maybe over denominational distinctives, and other times over things that probably don't affect one's, uh, you know, salvation or understanding of God. But um, because the Bible still talks about these kinds of things, you know, as best as we can, we still try to study them and try to understand them. We don't want to be dismissive of them. Um, you know, any more than, you know, with our physical bodies, if I say to you, hey, everybody, I got cancer. You're like, whoa, like you need to get that taken care of. I say, hey, everybody, I got a mole. Who cares? Um, well, maybe the mole doesn't matter as much as having cancer, but maybe the mole might lead to cancer. Or if I have a wart, well, it's not life or death, but I'd still rather not have a wart. Certain aspects of my health are far more important than other aspects. But I take care of the wart just as much as I would take care of cancer. So in the scriptures, it's true that certain things are far more important for us to study and understand and agree on. Other things aren't as important, but because it's in the Bible, it's all important on some level. Um, but anyway, appreciate your comment and... Uh, yeah, I would agree that 
the chances are that there will be some form of a tribulation period and hopefully the people of God will be gone prior to that but there also will be potentially many who come to faith in Christ during that that will suffer greatly yeah. other comments at the far back far back anything good out of like Alf uh, Dave Dale any profound comments for us tonight <laughs> Rob, you probably got something to say. No? Yeah. So I, I just tease you because I love you. Okay. You can feel that? Feel, feel the love? Okay. Good. Okay, well, uh, we're going to end there then. And uh, when we come back next week, we are going to actually get into the first chapter and start to uh, pull it apart. So all of this is background information. So what's your homework for next week? Read the book of Revelations. <laughs>